0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them, spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Ariel Adams here with the Superlative podcast. My guest today is Mr. Francois Sparrow. He is the president of Hublot North America. Jean-Francois, welcome.
1: Hi, Ariel. Pleasure to be with you.
0: I was just, you know, thinking back as to some of the many, many trips that we've had together with Hublot. You know, this show has been a wonderful opportunity to have public conversations with people that I've known privately for many years. I guess just to put things into context, tell everyone how many years you've been at Hublot and maybe, you know, the various positions you've had there during your time at the brand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I started with Jubilo quite some time ago because I started there uh beginning of 2009 exactly about 6 months after uh LVMH took over uh the brand. I happened to uh start my career at LVMH and in the watch industry at the same time because I took my first job uh in Switzerland uh in Neuchâtel uh in um April of 2004. So uh, you know, me and the watch uh, industry go uh, back quite some time. And yes, I was uh, at Tagore for about five years when uh, LVMH uh, decided to uh, take over uh, Hublot. And uh, that's how I got uh, transferred. So I uh, started there, like I said, in uh, January uh, 2009. And believe it or not, at that time, Hublot didn't have, uh, didn't have a single manufacturer. One was in construction. But actually, uh, the gate really opened in April 2009, so started a couple of months ago, uh, the construction or the opening of the first manufacturer. And I can tell you, Hublot was in a whole different world at the time.
0: Now, I think what you're describing is very interesting, and I want to explain a little bit more of this to people because, you know, you're sort of lucky to be right there at the time and place. Now, your first you know, career experience, real career experience was at Tag Heuer, which is part of LVMH. That's where you, you know, really began your professional life. And then the group that you were working for acquired a new brand, which was Hublot. And you had a special opportunity to go from the from the Tag Hoyer job to this new this new one. What was the feeling like at the time? Because Hublot, and I want to talk a lot about the brand Hublot, because it's a brand I love. I think it's a misunderstood brand. But what was the character of the brand at the time, about you know, 13 14 years ago now, that LVMH acquired it, you know, T- tell me, tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so it was a totally, totally, totally different universe. Um, at the time, uh, where I started at Hublot, and this is an anecdote that Mr. Beaver used to tell, but the um, the brand was on the first floor of a very small building, maybe two or three. Uh, floors only. And, uh, it was the same building as the Salvation Army. So, you know, we started in very, very modest, uh, facility at that time, at the time where I came, you could see two things. You could see that first the brand was growing on a very, very fast pace because when I went there, uh, there was almost no place to to sit. You know, it, it can look like a joke, but, uh, we had very tiny offices all the, the offices were uh, packed. Uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, the person who will greet you at the entrance of the office was almost like outside of the of the, the, the building because of <laughs> right. lack of space. And uh, that was the first impression. The second impression, it was already the the, the presence of, of Mr. Biver and obviously uh, his right hand at the time, uh, uh, Ricardo Guadalupe, because you could see that, this man has already an enormous, an enormous amount of charisma, authority, and, and magnetism. Um, the offices were very small at the time, and and, and, and you know you could hear Mr. Beaver pretty much wherever he was in the office, even if he was sitting at his own office giving a phone call. Everybody in the office would pretty much enjoy the conversation. So his presence, his vision, you know, sometimes his, uh, his tantrums or his joys everything were shared in the office pretty much at the same time that he was going through them and you could feel already that it was uh, his baby his mission and his vision that everybody was supposed to to carry i want to talk
0: more about Biver in a couple of minutes because again he is such a key part of this large conversation but let's go i want to get more sort of like corporate personality because you know he's not the world's most corporate person and lvmh um you know is is a corporate entity and things like that what were some of the interesting things that happened as a corporate entity like LVMH tried to absorb a very sort of rogue, maverick style, you know, move fast and, you know, think about things later, company like Hublot? Like, I was just always curious, what was that integration like? Because it seemed pretty seamless from the outside, right? Like, from my vantage point, it seemed pretty chill, seemed like it made sense. You know, a lot of the same team, team members were there. Ricardo, obviously, still you know running running the show to a large degree, but yeah. I'm just curious, like, what was it like from the inside on that transition?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, look, uh, two things on, on that. I do believe at the time uh, LVMH spent about half a billion Swiss franc, so let's say 500 million Swiss franc or dollar, pretty much today is pretty much the same on yeah. the acquisition of one brand. The brand was small at the time because it was doing a little below 200 million dollar of sales per year. So end of 2008, so still they paid half a billion for, for it. So, you know, they didn't want the money to go to waste. So one of the genius of RVMH, which today operates, which is a group that today operates almost, you know, a conglomerate of almost 85 brands is to leave those brands very, very independent. So, you know, the temptation in a group like that is to say, okay, what was successful for one single brand must work for all the other brands. So let's take the, the you know the biggest brand or the most successful one and apply uh, blindly uh, the the recipes for of, of success. Our image was smart enough, and, and yes, one of the the stroke of genius that they had is every time we're gonna integrate a company, there was you know an alchemy at some point that made that company successful in terms of culture, in terms of vision, in terms of development. Let's not um, pull the brake on that momentum. Let's not break the, the mold. And so they let Hublot continue on, on its path, do their stuff uh, at their own pace, with their own uh, culture and, and behavior. And um, obviously with the years and the growth and, and, and the presence of our image, things are changing and, and we're changing a little bit every year. But at the beginning, it's, it was really the, 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 that stance. We purchased you for a reason. And, you know, that reason is what we want to protect. So continue to do what you know you do well and we'll help you wherever you you want, you know. The second thing, obviously, um, LVMH uh, is a group which is listed on the on the Paris Stock Exchange, you know, so uh, there is a lot of uh, at stake here, was just to make sure I believe that they can have, like they could have a guy that was in a sense, um, a witness of uh, uh, the way operations were conducted. So one thing they did and um, was to put uh, a number three at the time, uh, a CFO who was coming from another uh, entity of LVMH just to make sure that, yes, things were done the way it should be in a group which is listed on the Paris Stock Exchange. So more from, a I would say, operation and, and finance point of view. But all the rest, again, Um, This is one of the things that LVMH um, does the best when they acquire a new company, they know it's successful and they let it run its course. And that's why I do believe Hublot was able to multiply itself by four um, between uh, January 1st of 2009 and uh, December 31st of 2021. I mean, we could talk forever about these
0: little interesting managerial stuff that, you know, you you find interesting. I find it interesting. Of course, a lot of the people listening to the show are curious about, you know, the big names, bever and the many people associated with Hublot as well, of course, the watches and things like that. But I just sort of want to quickly talk about the ascendance of your current position to being the president of North America. Um, that's a, a very important role. And I guess I think, you know, it should you should explain to people... Um, you know obviously Ublo uh, works in many, many markets, and many of them are very important. But talk about the importance of the American market to the brand and maybe how that's changed because from my vantage point, you know being the person that runs America is very important because America is especially right now, you know the most important market in the world for not just Hublot, but but all all luxury watches. So do yeah, you talk a little bit about your role there and and how America fits into the uh, the Hublot market?
1: Yeah, it's very true. So I, I will start um, where you ended uh, because it's the the, the the diagnosis that everybody does today. Um, the U.S. and North America is the place to be uh, today. Uh, this is the main driver of business for every uh, single uh, watch brand today. China will probably uh, you know come back uh, uh, soon and, and probably sooner than, than we think. But today uh, they are still you know affected negatively by. Uh, the way they handle uh, COVID. Um, Europe uh, is recovering pretty well, but has been affected a lot by, uh, you know, obviously the, 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 the last uh, pandemic and, and then the, uh, the problems arising with, uh, with uh, travels and, and everything. But today, um, I hope it's going to continue, but the, um, the, the, the US economy is extremely robust. Uh, we can see that the luxury market in general and the, and the watch market in particular are uh, faring uh, at unprecedented uh, level and at an unprecedented pace. So today I I do see that at Hublot, but I I do see that also uh, with a lot of my competitors. Um, Every headquarters, whether it's Switzerland or or Paris, um, are turning their eyes to the US, channeling more uh, watches than ever to the US, channeling more uh, Mm -hmm. marketing dollars to the US, and now that, uh, you know, the, the, the borders are, are easy to cross, are probably traveling uh, like they never did uh, to the U.S. So this is the main driver. And in this, um, it's very, very much on, on the radar of every, uh, every watch brand uh, headquarter. Now, uh, I would add a second thing. It was not always the case at, uh, at Hublot. Hublot is a fairly new company. Uh, now we are very, uh, you know, established in the, in the watchmaking landscape. But we have to remind ourselves that Hublot did not exist in 1979. The brand has only been uh, created in 1980. So, you know, uh, not even 42 years ago. And and from 1980 to 2005, the brand did, did not enjoy uh, a very striking success. Uh, it's a euphemism. The, the brand was very confidential, uh, doing very limited the turnover, uh, not extremely profitable. So the, the, the brand really uh, became... Um, relevant uh, when Mr. Viver and and Ricardo Guadalupe joined uh, the the venture uh, in 2005, and then it it took off pretty quickly. Now, the thing with, uh, I will say, startup companies or new companies is you have to develop in in a very opportunistic way. You know, maybe you decide that your priority is the U.S. and China and all of a a sudden, you know, you you, you take off maybe in Europe and South America. It can have a, I, I can give many examples, but um, I do believe that the, the success of, uh, of Hublot was m- first mainly done in, uh, in Europe, you know, the, the success was not uh, overnight uh, in, uh, in, in North America. For me, I, I date more of the success um, of Hublot in North America started from the, the 2010s and, and on. Um, I, it's not as scientific or as exact as, as that, but somehow... You know, there is some form of uh, parallel that we can say, to, or that we can establish between really the, 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 the beginning of the relevance of Hugo in North America and the moment Jay-Z rapped about the song. You believe it was late 2010, beginning of 2011. Um, so in the US, the success was a little later than, than in, uh, in Europe. And obviously, you know, you need to start where you are based. So that's normal. And um, I would say that the success of Hublot, for example, in a place like China was even uh, later, you know, the, the, the subsidiary of Hublot in China was, uh, I believe, established in 2009, and um, the success came uh, only a, a few years later um, over there, I would say started 2015 and, uh, and, and, and after. So, um, yes, we did a lot of work, and, and we can go back to, you know, the strategy we used in, in the U.S. We did a lot of work in, in North America to make it what it is today one of the you know top uh, eight brands in the top nine brands in the, in the market. Um, it was not always the case, but today I'm happy it is. I do believe that the hard work has uh, paid off. And I hope uh, for Ublo and, uh, and for the watchmaking industry as a whole that the U.S. remain and will remain the number one uh, watch uh, market as long as possible. I think it will.
0: I think it will. And what I'm realizing right now is that a lot of people listening may not know the full... History of Hublot, and maybe we can tell it together. So Hublot started in the early '80s, maybe '82, in the year that I was born. I'm not sure. Maybe you know. And no, then... n-
1: 1980. I'm born '81, so we're one year apart. Okay. And, and Hublot uh, uh, was uh, created in 1980. So
0: 1980. Right okay. Yeah. So then
1: it it was um, you
0: know it, it was a brand that was supposed to be a modern watch brand, and they made a variety of things. And Hublot in French means you know porthole or, or window it literally references the the look of these um you know windows on the sides of boats that's where the theme came and that's and that's where a lot of Gerald Genta for example you know used the exact same motif when he when he designed the Royal Oak and stuff like that so a lot of people don't realize that this is core set of influences and then I know what year was it? Was it the year two thousand? Maybe a little bit before, when Jean-Claude Biver, using money that he received from the sale of Blanc Pond to the Swatch Group, decided to purchase Hublot as a, as a fixer upper. Anything so I got wrong? Uh, so-
1: and, no, no, no. That's exactly uh, you know what what, what happened. Uh, the the the. Um, the date was just a little later. I do believe that uh, Mr. Beaver came uh, at the end of 2004 and, and really uh, uh, took the helm in 2005 uh, with the release of the of the Big Bang uh, along, again, uh, Ricardo Guadalupe. So um, it was really 2005 that uh, the new uh, venture started. And, uh, you know, uh, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, in the span of four years, um, instant success. Uh, the Big Bang pretty much... Uh, Mr. Biver and and, and Ricardo Guadalupe uh, changed a lot of things. You know, Hublot was not necessarily named Hublot before, so it was the name of a a line of products that became the name of the brand. They changed uh, the price point. They changed the, 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 uh, I would say, the the concept of the company, uh, coining the the, the art of fusion and and really um, put an end to all the, the, the lines of product of the company to create uh, one new uh, line uh, called the Big Bang. you know obviously a big undertaking when you refer as your uh, uh, product and your collection as the creation of the universe. but uh, it was something major uh, you know in our small uh, ecosystem in our small industry and uh, it was an instant success and everything was built uh, slowly from uh, from there. Uh, into mid 2008, uh, the success of the company brought, uh, you know, the, the, the eyes of LVMH into the, the company. Um, they took over, uh, yes, 100% of the of the share from the hand of uh, Mr. Biver and the founder of the company, whose name was uh, uh, Carlo Croco. And uh, since then, we've been uh, uh, one uh, entity, uh, one of the almost 85 brands that LVMH owned. Uh, they own uh, only a few in the watch uh, industry they are mostly active in uh, in fashion in um, the profession and cosmetics in, in wine and spirits uh, and also in distribution um, but in the watch and jewelry division uh, only a few brands obviously in the in the jewelry they have two uh, heavy heaters with uh, tiffany and, and bulgari but in, in the watch division it's uh, it's it's much smaller with hublot uh, obviously tag hoyer and uh, and zenith
0: Thank you for that. And there's a few other little ones in there. You know, Dior makes some watches, Xiaomi yeah. makes some watches. There's the, but you're right. You're right. It, it, on, on the whole, if you look at the big pie, which is LVMH, watches are a small segment. But one that – and I think this is very important to mention – the conglomerates that own watchmakers, even though the watchmaking doesn't always end up being the highest you know, percentage of revenues – captures so much of the attention of the managers, you know, LVMH is run by the, um, the Arnault family and they are so deeply obsessed with watches, you know, that, that, his children, Bernard, uh, you know, you know, um, Frederick at Tag Heuer, we have Jean yeah. at, 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 um, you know, the, Louis, Vuitton, who- Louis Vuitton, um, you know, that are, that are there at the watch brands. Um, so much attention. I've seen Mr. Arno at many of the events for, for yes. Tag and for a blow they care so much so even though it's a, sl- a smaller slice of the overall business the personal interest that the the manager of these massive groups that own these brands have has, cares so much every product sure. every decision sure. um you know and and that's interesting. let me i want to go back to mr bever for a second because i think it's another yes. Uncommon situation where somebody sells a brand that they own to a corporate entity, and then they stick a, stick around—not for a, a year or two—but Beaver stuck around leading Hublot for quite a while. W- you know what? What was it about that deal that made it so that he sold it, but also got to keep a really great job that he loved for a long time? Yeah. Like,
1: how did that happen? So first, Mister Beaver is you know a, a, an overachiever. Is a man who's larger than, than life. He's a man who needs a, a purpose. He cannot stand still. Uh, he is a gentleman that wakes up pretty much at four a.m. every day, but literally and starts working so that he can be ahead of competition. So he's really uh, now I do believe an icon and, and a legend, but he's a well-deserved statue because he really built uh, everything that way. So um, when a damage I think first it was out of the question for him just to let's say. Uh, Uh, Retired or stop for a little bit because he cannot, it's not his nature. But I do believe as well, you know, he had an obligation or he felt a commitment first to all the employees uh, because he brought most of those employees on board. And also I do believe that Hublot doing a little less than $200 million of sales at that time was, let's say, a a teenager. And so, you know, when you're a parent, do you feel that your teenager is ready to go out in the world uh, uh, during those years? I'm not sure. So he also, I guess, wanted to make sure that the brand could mature a little bit more because he had more to give to the brand. He was still building a lot of things uh, in terms of products, in terms of marketing, in terms of uh, distribution network. Um, He wanted to make sure the company will uh, continue to grow and and to mature. And, And only at that stage, I think it felt that the moment was right to hand the keys. Again, I do believe it was in 2012 that Mr. Beaver became the head of the watch division of LVMH. Again, he didn't hand the key to a a random person. He gave the keys of the company to his loyal um, right hand, a person that he brought uh, in the company with him in 2005 uh, to turn around uh, Hublot, and he knew that his vision uh, will be uh, carried on uh, he will know that his legacy will be protected, that everything that he has built uh, will be uh, capitalized on. And I do believe that you know, from 2012 to 2022, Ricardo Guadalupe had made uh, a great job at uh, pursuing Mr. Biver's uh, vision, uh, continuing in, in the past, and, and, and the legacy that he had made um, with the, the, the brand. You know, uh, the, 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 if you look at the collection, a lot of things were established by him. Uh, even on the marketing, um, you know, uh, aspect of things. Uh, The soccer um, was uh, something that was initiated by Mr. Biver, but also a lot of our collaboration in arts, like with Richard Olinsky, which is today uh, a big portion of ourselves, or with Saint Bleu uh, and Maxime Bouchy, uh, same thing, another significant portion of ourselves. All of that were initiated by Mr. Biver. So we still uh, somehow um, live on on a lot of uh, the the heritage that he has uh, established. And that's where you see that when a company is turned around or established a very strong way in terms of the DNA um, and in terms of uh, being on the right path, you can live on for quite some time. And we were lucky enough that, yeah, Mr. Viver with the Art of Fusion uh, give us a very clear uh, marketing concept. He established uh, the, the, the brand in, in a very uh, um, appropriate uh, price point, in a very appropriate uh, kind of watchmaking. Which I think you know is the watchmaking uh, that is winning today—a modern, bold, uh, innovative kind of uh, watchmaking. And uh, today, if we enjoy a, such a significant growth, and if we are now solidly incurred in the test ten biggest um, uh, Swiss watch brands in the, in the world, it's not by accident. It, it's really thanks to all the work that he did back in uh, starting in
0: 2005. So let's talk a little bit about that because you know I think that 2005 moment is very important for the watch industry if you were there you know i guess you remember but you know again there's a lot of history and context that needs to be reminded to people you know i've been in this industry for a certain amount of time and and i really remember that so i think be you know he acquired it a couple a little bit before but then yes it was about 2004 2005 where it was public launch of the big bang which took some of the traditional design dna of older hublot watches and turned it into a modern sports watch. This was yes. a design that Biver with with uh, Ivan Arpa and the team that was working there at the time came up with. And what I think is so interesting about this is it began the moment where Hublot was a controversial brand. What I mean by controversy is not that Hublot ever did anything bad, but it it, it had people that loved it, And at the same time, by virtue of having some people that love it, there's other people with different personality types that that didn't like it. And this was – this for me was so pivotal to the industry because for the first time, a a European luxury watch brand of the modern era said, we don't care if we appeal to some people and not others. And as we know, tribalism and focusing in on your niche – has been what has led to success for many watch friends. But Hublot is the first one to do it brazenly and openly and publicly. And it has created so many fans, even though at the same time on the other end of the pendulum are someone who will just sort of define them as maybe have more conservative taste or whatever, didn't like it. And I think that was such an interesting lesson to especially European luxury that was not accustomed to that level of public conversation about their brand of products, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and for, for, for that, I would say maybe three things. First, um, Mr. Beaver is a natural-born marketer. He's also very loud, he's provocative, um, he does, he's divisive, he doesn't let anyone uh, indifferent. So I think the brand was also a reflect of his personality. Mr. Biber is very much of that, that loud person that you're going to either love or, or, or somehow hate. You know, I think it's a, it's a good person and he did so much in our industry. I think now uh, most of the people will, will give him the status of, uh, you know, a legend or at least icon from the, the watch industry But it's divisive. So he wanted to make sure uh, as he, he was turning around the brand that the brand could be different. Now, when you have difference, some people are going to like that difference. Some people are going to reject that difference. For him, being divisive was always uh, a success because it will give him a status. And maybe that will be a status will come with a lot of uh, haters. But for him, he's very much the kind of person who's feeling off of uh, that uh, that hate. So first, I do believe that, yes, uh, Hugo is divisive by nature, but because it was done by uh, it was done around by a very divisive and, and polarizing person. Uh, but that was a positive because, um, uh, it comes with differentiation and, and disruption. So that's one. Second, I think that also Hublot and, and when you're saying like, you know, uh, Hublot is a controversial brand, I, uh, I agree with you. You know, uh, we, if you really looked at the, the comments on, on social media, on forums, or if you really talk to, um, collectors, uh, you know, it, it will be really being blind or, 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 um, or deaf not to 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 hear that and then to acknowledge that somehow I do believe we are normalizing ourselves because we now we've been for for uh, in the in, uh, in the in the landscape for for so long that you know uh, now people are, are accepting you know the vast majority of collectors are really accepting and, and more than accepting embracing us but I do believe in the first uh, times, there was a second element beside Mr. Bieber, uh, you know, ways of turning around things, which was also the, the similarity with, uh, with AP. A lot of people were saying at the beginning, oh, you know, the original Big Bang uh, was uh, really inspired by the Royal Oak, and, and there is this, and there is that. But if you really look at the original uh, Hublot, like you mentioned, you can really see the filiation between the original Big Bang and Steve Ceramic and, and the previous watches that were called MDM. Uh, you, uh, and, and you can really see uh, the evolution of, of, um, of that watch. Uh, then eventually, yes, uh, you know, nothing resembles more uh, to a watch than, than another watch, so you can always uh, find a similarity between the Royal Oak and uh, an Origin Big Bang, but I do believe since then, we're having, you know, now four uh, different lines of collections, or even five if we add uh, the, the Masterpiece uh, family. I do believe, you know, nobody really makes that parallel with, with AP anymore. The brand has developed a, a universe uh, of his own. Uh, we have our own identity. So I don't really hear that so much. But in the beginning, that was a little bit of uh, of that, which didn't help. Uh, oh, I gotta to mention render. that.
0: I gotta yeah. mention that because I've always been so frustrated by it. It's such... Okay, so <laughs> Audemars Piguet has a collection of watches that come out in the 1990s called the Royal Oak Offshore. And the whole idea is to have a sportier version of a sports watch right so the original royal oak came out as a sports watch but over time it became a dress watch and then people said oh we need a sportier version of the sports watch and in the 2000s that I mean, so the 90s that came out as the the royal oak offshore and then yeah. Blow says oh there's a market for high end sports watches and that means that 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 Ublo copied AP it, there's no visual parallels. people people say oh they both have screws in the bezel. I'm like Cartier put screws in the bezel in like 1904. Does that mean that Cartier is the only one that's allowed to do that? What about the actual windows around boats that also have screws around the bezel that both of them copied from like other than that I don't ever hear anybody like coherently explaining what was quote unquote copied. And like you, I heard that all the time and it upset me
1: because I don't like copying and that's not what Hublot is doing at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and, and I'm happy you, you said that because s- somehow you are neutral. You know, you you, you have obviously your, your taste and uh, and distaste, and but you, you are an observer uh, of the whole industry. So you, your your sense is very much appreciated for me. Sometimes people are obviously telling me that I'm biased because, you know, I'm working for one brand and not the other. But I do like to be, you know, uh, fair and, and balanced. I have uh, some uh, affection um, for uh, a lot of, uh, you know, my competitors. Uh, I like watches. So I really said that in all um, fairness. Uh, first, I acknowledge that people were were saying this. And, and so on, uh, there is a history that I, I do think prove them wrong, but, you know, it is how it is. And, and number three, I will say, you know, what also helped make uh, Hugo a little bit controversial in the beginning um, was its success, because the brand took off so quickly after the release of uh, the Big Bang that it disrupted a lot of the um, traditional status quo in, uh, in our industry. You know, our industry is very traditional. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, it's mimicked a little bit on Switzerland, which is... Uh, a very uh, efficient country when it comes to uh, to business, uh, but which is also traditional and takes time to adopt uh, trends. And uh, if you took, you know, the situation in every multi-brand retailer, whether in the U.S. or the world, a uh, small company growing so fast is somehow causing a problem because, you know, when when the, 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 the bigger brands uh, are, are going to assess the results with every multi-brand and they're going to hear that there is a smaller brand that, that uh, went ahead of them in terms of sales, they're going to complain uh, to the multi-brand saying like, okay, why now, uh, you know, uh, you are selling less of my brand and more of that new brand called Hublot. Uh, it's causing me a problem. You know, I don't want to lose market share and everything. And so uh, the retailer doesn't want to have a problem with the big, uh, you know, brands that is representing sometime for uh, years or decades or more. And that's also creating an issue uh, for the brand, making it a little more controversial. Um, so I will say those three elements, you know, probably the the the... the, the the necessity to be different and disruptive and polarizing to be able to be different, number one. Number two, somehow the parallel with AP. And number three, the um, description of the status, quo, the status quo in terms of sales at the, 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 the distribution uh, network level were all elements that helped make Hublot uh, a little bit uh, and somehow controversial Uh, in the past and and, and tea somehow uh, today. Have you visited the gift store for watch
0: lovers? It's called the blog to watch store and we carry art, apparel and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the blog to watch store. Right now, the blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog2Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The blog to watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products which the blog to watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. And yes, thank you for all that. And I want to go back a little bit again to that time in around 2005. The Big Bang, similar to a lot of watches today, was hard to get, was selling out, was not able to be delivered with the volume that the market wanted from. And at the same time, Jean-Claude Biver, who is a master of marketing, as you said, Jean-Francois, was always looking for ways to promote, to create buzz, uh, to get the news out there. Um, At the time, Audemars Piguet never could have dreamed of having that type of um, zealousness around their watches. They did not enjoy that type of attention at all, at all. Only later did Audemars Piguet ascend um, to sort of the spot that it is right now, probably in large part because of the fire that I think Jean-Claude Biver put under them to actually get serious. They were just kind of floating along for a very long time, not doing too much. Yeah. So um, let, let's I, I want to talk a little bit more about about your time, but let's talk about Jean-Claude Biver a little bit more yeah. because he is the character who is very celebrated in the space you know, wonderfully stubbornly does not want to retire, which I guess yeah. is a good thing for us, even though I know his family gets annoyed. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, but, you know, as someone that worked under him close to him, talk about the reasons why he is given so much praise from within the industry. I know from from without, outside the industry, he's a, he's a great speaker and he's a good product person. But But talk about what it's like to work under him because, you know, he's also an executor and without his team, which he's put, which he put a lot of years putting together, you were included in it, he can't get stuff done. So talk a little bit about what it's like to work for the man.
1: To work for Mr. Beaver is uh, very easy and very difficult at the same time. Very easy for certain people, very difficult for some others, but he's a very easy man to grasp. What you see is what you get with Mr. Beaver. You got somebody who has an absolute fire uh to succeed, but also for our industry. So you need to be able to keep pace. Uh, like I was saying, it's somebody who started his day at 4 a.m. to get ahead of competition, to get ahead of everyone, to handle all of his, all of his emails before the day starts, and you need to be able to keep with that. Now, it, it, it was never unfair to the point where, you know, because he was doing that, he was expecting the same f- from other people. Uh, you, you are free to do so if you, if you want, but it was not, you know, imposing that face to the other but what you need to do with him is to be reactive, to be fast on your feet, to be decisive. Mr. Beaver believes in two things which really shaped my belief about uh, you know entrepreneurship and, and, and the startups and, and small company, if you're not the most known, let's say the most famous in your industry or the most or one of the most recognized actor and if you are not, um, at, uh, if you have not at your disposal uh, the biggest resources, let's say financial resources okay you are left with two two things first doing uh, uh, making smart decisions and hopefully you're gonna make more smart decisions than, than dumb decision but being you know uh, finding shortcuts um making the right decision uh, doing the smart moves that's one and second which is as important if not more important than the, than the first one speed of execution Mr beaver came with you blow with a, with a notion that you know, every single email should be answered in 10 minutes, okay, at the latest. Otherwise, it's all news. I mean, how much (laughs) reflection can you put if you start answering all of your emails in 10 minutes? But he knows that, you know, he's far from being stupid, he's extremely intelligent. The thing is that for him, speed of execution trumps everything. If you move and you make a mistake, but if you move fast enough, you can still go back and correct For him, it was moving fast at all costs. He knew, he had the experience, he had the vision, he had the exact playbook of what he wanted to do. He wanted people that were able to be smart, not to reinvent the wheel, he was there for that, but to be smart in in adapting what he wanted, to implement his guidelines, but to move smart. If you understand that with Mr. Viveur, he's gonna be your greatest source of inspiration, of mentorship, of everything, and of success. If you don't understand that, your life can become very difficult because he's somebody with relatively low patience, uh, <laughs> you know, because he's here to succeed and he's here to win. But if you understand that, he's a uh, he's, he's greater source of inspiration and he can move mountains because he has the way to convince people at all levels of the hierarchy, you know, CEOs, um, executive partners, ambassadors, athletes. Singers, artists, whatever you want, is extremely convincing. He has that form of charisma and magnetism that brings people with him, no matter what. So at the beginning, you know, I'm very analytical and rational. I was um, listening to every word that Mister was 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 saying, you know. And at the end, after a couple of, of, of uh, speeches that I saw from him, you know, back in two thousand eight and nine, now you stood, You, you know, you you stop maybe analyzing every word so literally, and you just look at it as a, as a show. And now all those words, taken separately, takes a whole other meaning. They bring you to a whole other level. And I was sometimes looking, not sometimes at him, but at the crowd that he was talking to. And you can see the crowd being really riled up, being very um, transported, uh, brought into another state. And that's very rare to have somebody with that level of... Um, of uh, credit, that, yeah. level of, uh, uh, that level of convincing, that level of captivating crowds. And, and at the same time, I think he needs that because he's feeding off that energy. Uh, Mr. Beaver, you know, when he was going into a trip, will always tell us, please, uh, ask you for one favor. And you always, you know, ask, uh, as you were always asking, OK, what it is? You need a, spe- a special car, a special room, a special... Uh, he said, no, no, I don't care about all that. Uh, so what's the favor you want, uh, Mr. Biver? I want no breaks during my, uh, my, my trip. What do you mean you want no break? As soon as I land from the plane, please uh, bring me to a meeting. Please add some more uh, meetings. Uh, bring me to journalists. Bring me to clients. Bring me to final customers. Let's do meeting. And I say, but at some point, don't you want a break to recover from, uh, you know, the trip, the jet lag, the, the time difference, the, the fatigue? No, no, no. If I take a break, I, uh, I snooze and then you know i uh, i switch off mr biver he needs an audience always around him and that's how he light off and that's why he never stopped as long yeah. as he have journalists around him as long as he have final customers collectors um uh, retailers uh, everybody anyone from the industry the energy that he has inside is multiplied by 10 and uh, you know he, he puts one of those speech that is uh, uh, legendary, legendary for so that's how it was to work for him. I think he made a, a very long lasting impression on everybody that worked for him. I think a lot of people are, are still probably uh, keeping him as uh, their, their biggest source of, uh, of inspiration. And, and uh, for sure, at Hublot, uh, everybody that is today part of the brand still hears a lot of story about him and is anyhow grateful for the success of the company. Because again, he set it up the way it is today, not as big as it was when he was there. The foundation was there uh, in terms of message, in terms of product, in terms of marketing and and, and vision. So uh, no, kudos to, to him.
0: Thank you so much for sharing the stories about it. Again, um, a lot of people have had various types of relationships with Mr. Beaver And I like people to tell those stories because I believe that in this industry, with a lack of sort of like a school for watch brand managers, there's a few brand managers that are created accidentally, You know, just happen to be the right personality, the right place. And Bivere is one of them. And it's smart for everyone around these men and women that sort of have this natural thing to learn and to absorb because there's really no other place to learn this information. You know, um, Bivere himself learned a lot from Mr. Hayek Senior, who's no longer yes. around. He received a lot of great lessons from that. Now he's passing them down to people like you. So there used to be Hayek's disciples. Now we have Bivere's disciples. And it's, you know, it's 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 sort of that you know, you are. Part of that next generation of managers who have will have received that wisdom, and I want to add one more thing to the the wonderful sort of stories you were telling about Jean Claude. People need to recognize that he is not ethnically Swiss. He didn't grow up in Switzerland. He grew up in in, in Luxembourg, I believe, and he came yes. to Switzerland. And he he had a, he has a very interesting experience because he does things that normal Swiss personalities don't do. He's more self assured of his own decisions. I mean, he has confidence. In making choices, the Swiss are very, have very low confidence in making decisions. They always have to rely on studies or other people or consensus or something like that. So he comes into a culture that he has a lot of appreciation for, but he has certain advantages, like the ability to have more charisma, have, a, have an opinion that he's, he's confident to follow. And he has this ability that at the same time to speak to Swiss people while also not being Swiss. And that allowed him to get things done and to go to teams and say, okay, everyone, your goal is to not only make things of a high quality, but to make things and to do things. And and what you're talking about, I think is important to, to separate from other watch brands where things appear to move very, very slow. And I believe that Jean-Claude Bivert especially in the early 2000s, recognized that he would not be able to get done nearly what he wanted to get done at the normal time frames and waiting times that the industry normally had. And, and it sounds like he did a lot to make sure that everyone else agreed with him there.
1: Would you agree, disagree? No, oh, I agree 100%. Uh, and I do believe that um, you, you nailed it, you know, when you talk about, um, to use that word, his audacity, uh, it's exactly what it is. Uh, Switzerland is a country I deeply love. I, I spent more than a decade there, and I, I really fell in love with, uh, with the country. I found my wife there. I was extremely happy uh, in this country. Um, but it's true, it's a country, and that's the beauty also of the country, uh, and uh, of the political system, for example, which is working extremely well. It's a country based on consensus. Now, uh, what's good for maybe political um, uh, system uh, is not necessarily so good for uh, for business in the sense that sometimes in business you you need a man to take the lead and to have a vision and to be able to implement that vision. So you know, um, Mr. Bieber was not uh, lacking any form of audacity. He was somebody who will uh, impose sometimes decision against the, the 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 consensus. Most of the time, consensus being afraid of crossing a line. Uh, there is one uh, anecdote, which is uh, you know now a known anecdote, but at some point Mr. Rivera himself um, managed to, to sign a deal with uh, Formula One, and at the time uh, Bernie Ecclestone was the uh, CEO from uh, from Formula One.
0: A difficult, difficult guy for people
1: that don't know. Yes, but Mr. Rivera was very good at handling you know uh, people with uh, a very um, specific personality and people also that were larger than life, but. Uh, one day, uh, Bernie Eccleston was, uh, was, uh, I think going back from dinner in London, He was wearing uh, a Hublot on his wrist and, and unfortunately he got mugged. His watch was taken away and, uh, and that's a sad, sad story. Now the next day, uh, because it's uh, Mr. Beaver and they're probably good friends. He sent a picture of his face totally bruised, uh, with, uh, with a black eye and, uh, and uh, yes, uh, like the guy was just, uh, you know, assaulted uh, uh, and, and, and robbed, you know. And uh, Mr. Beaver, obviously, after, uh, you know, taking, so checking in on, uh, on him and, uh, and chatting a little bit with the guy, his, his instinct was uh, uh, a marketing instinct. And he said, you know what we can do out of that picture? We can do a marketing campaign. And then he asked the marketing team to put a marketing campaign with the uh, face of Bernie uh completely bruised. And came up with uh, a tagline, which was saying like, "This is what people are ready to do for a Hublo." And I re- then I remember he, that very well. He, 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 he went on and advertised the, the, that, that, that campaign. How many, you know, of us, how many CEO, and I honestly include myself in, in, in that. First, can have that ID, and second, if you have that ID, how many are going to be able to implement that because. It's going to be very uh, divisive, very polarizing. A lot of people will say, oh, it's in poor taste. Oh, you're taking advantage of somebody's misery. Oh, that's not the way it should be. It's serious. Let's not joke about that. Mr. biver was not caring about people's ideas when he had such a vision. For him, he wanted to stand out, to disrupt, and so uh, to be so audacious, is very rare, especially in, uh, in entities and maybe sometimes groups or conglomerates where you're going to have to deal with so many layers of validation before everything gets through. And that's why I do believe, you know, um, turning around the company, uh, the way Hublot was turned around was maybe more easily done uh, as an independent. Because as an independent, what do you need to turn around a company? You need to take risks because you want to stand out. You cannot stand out by doing the same as the other. So you want to take risks and you want short um, circuits of decision. You don't want 10 layers of approval. First, because it's going to take forever. And second, because they're going to change everything from the initial decision. So, uh, you know, aversion to risk uh, and uh, or embracing risks and and taking um, a quick decision with very uh, few layers of validation is the thing that allows to turn around Hublot in a very uh, in an independent mode, and I think that's why where uh, Mr. Viver Audacity could express itself uh, the best, probably at Blancpain and at Hublot. Then eventually those two brands uh, were part of groups where you know he obviously enjoyed a, a lot more of um, check and balances, uh, which were good, but he was also having enough credits. And had enough personality to still push his ideas through. But I do believe that you know his audacity and his vision are not expressed as best as where he is almost you know alone at the at the helm because his audacity can be totally uh, unleashed. You know, so that's my uh, my vision (laughs) and my
0: take. So, last question about Be Fair: What have you taken? From him that you've incorporated not only into your own management style but your own personality. Where do you see yourself, you know, manifesting, some Beaver?
1: Yeah. So the, the the thing for me, it takes it took me a little bit of uh, time at, at the beginning uh, because I, I think I'm wired in in a totally opposite way, uh, Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver is 99% instinctive. He feels things. He's uh, impulsive. He acts fast. I am somebody very rational, very analytical. I love to think, I love to to ponder, to to question. So um, it was at the beginning, a little bit of like an enigma for him to understand how he was organizing the the company. And then I saw that it was a success. So I said, you know what? There is something that you should uh, uh, explore and, and understand. How? what is this playbook? And at the end, the takeaways, I would say are the following. Um, making sure that um, you do not create an environment where risks are uh, forbidden. Uh, because, for example, you're afraid to uh, get into an argument with your boss or you're afraid that your ideas are going to shut down or you're afraid that your ideas are going to, to, to disturb people or, or to disrupt things. no. Risk is a good thing. If you don't take risks, this is the beginning of the, the a downward spiral. So that's one. Second, risk taking <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It sounds obvious, but then uh, do it in an entity with uh, with hundreds of people, and you can see how difficult it is all of a sudden to 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 take risks because then maybe your career is at stake. Yep. You know, it's yep. difficult to 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 sell an idea on the basis of an idea. You know, everybody has their opinion and think their opinion are better. Now when you, that idea has Uh, come to reality and you have proofs and results, now the conversation changed. But just based on opinions, everybody tends to see, no, my opinion is the right opinion, you know? So (laughs) to continue to take risks, that's one. Second, to make sure that you can create a culture and an environment where you remain agile, where you remain nimble, where your speed of execution can be extremely strong. And the more you grow, the more you want to make sure that you're not adding layers, that you're not um, decreasing the speed at, at, at which you move, because I don't believe that the the, the um, let's let's put it this way, uh, it is the, the the big who eats the small. I think it's the the, the fastest who eats uh, the um, the slowest, and uh, I do believe that yes, risk uh, taking and, and speed of execution are two main takeaways from from Mr. Viver. N- the number three I will say is to have that constant uh mix of audacity and curiosity to const- to constantly try to 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 stand out to improve to 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 go to the next level while remaining uh curious uh, even as you grow in age and maybe you want to stay stuck on on some other um or some older concepts no the world change and as much as it's difficult to change with him past a certain age and i'm, I'm 41 uh, uh, as we speak so you know i uh, not old per se, but I'm not, you know, 20 or 30 anymore. Uh, it, it, you need to continue to challenge your old beliefs and change as the world change, even if it's very uh, uncomfortable. So I will say that, you know, risk taking speed of execution for sure, and then staying a mix of audacity and uh, and curiosity. Those are the main takeaway uh, that I take from mini, from Mr. Rivera. There are many more, but, you know, in the interest of uh, uh, not putting everyone to sleep, I will stick you, to it. You something.
0: don't, you don't, hit your fist on the table when you're very enthusiastic so you
1: know the problem with me is like you know I, I'm, I'm probably close to 145 pounds altogether you know so i'm not as physical as mr river so i tend not to 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 demonstrate this my uh, enthusiasm uh, the same way but maybe who knows you know in a couple of years uh, who knows yeah i mean we like we
0: it's always like a fun thing to like you know Shake our fist on the table and say something like, you know, like Jean-Claude, you know, all black. It must be all black. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, for sure. For sure. For sure. It's what that, yeah. I want to talk about the marketing side of things. You know, um, for people to appreciate Ublo watches, it's just a matter of going on a blog to watch and reading our countless articles or going to the Ublow website. And I and you know, these shows are really about the personalities uh, and, and the activities behind the brand. Marketing. Um, especially for like a good ten-year period, at the brand was strategic, but also ceaseless and ongoing. There was events constantly. There was special watches for different audiences constantly. There was relationships with events and new ambassadors and celebrities constantly. What kept this machine going? What was what was the you know, who was deciding what events and what things, uh, because I believe that these days it's not enough, not nearly enough to have a great product. There's a lot of brands out there that have great product. What brands need to do is to marry a great product with a great personality and great activities and a great relationship with the public. And so talk a little bit about that side of Hublot, because I don't think that people appreciate, even if they didn't like every event, they didn't appreciate how important those volume events were to what the brand is.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I, I do believe that um yes, the combination of great product and great marketing is uh is, is a winner and and something something that cannot be defeated. Uh, I I do believe obviously that the higher you are in price points, the more emphasis uh, the, the 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 product element, uh, the product side of things has. Uh, you can still succeed uh you know in 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 the very high uh, price points or the very high uh, segments. If your product is, uh, is is incredible, well-priced, well-designed, innovative, then ultimately it has to be backed by a nice marketing. But I do believe that the product is where everything starts and 90% of the success. We were lucky enough that the art of fusion could be applied equally to uh, the product side of things and also the marketing side of things. So in, in terms of product, I do believe that uh, it was ingrained in our DNA to to combine different worlds into uh, into the world of washmaking, whether in terms of uh, Um, materials, uh, combining exotic materials uh, and bringing them into the the, the world of watchmaking, uh, movements, design. uh, That was always present from the the very beginning and and really uh, uh, something that uh, was coined around the the world art of Fusion. Um, But in terms of marketing, that was also very handy when we really had any history uh, per se and we were able to explore many different kinds of uh, avenues, so the art of fusion just allowed us to explore uh, different worlds and to combine them with the world of watchmaking. We did a lot, obviously, in the world of sports, uh, being the first uh, luxury brand to ever uh, invest in, in soccer. But we also did a lot in the world of uh, art, uh, the world of uh, design, uh, the world of gastronomy, uh, and, and, and many more. Um, I do believe that that combination of very striking product and, and uh, Relentless marketing, uh, everything looked under the, uh, the banner of the Art of Fusion was really uh, the winning equation for, for Hublot. Now, uh, you were saying uh, and, and that you know, Hublot was always going with new watches, new ambassadors, new events and everything. That was very much, and it's still today, uh, the DNA of the, the brand. Uh, when you turn around the company, like the company was turned around in 2005, you don't want to be shy uh, in your efforts. And so you tend to overdo it. You want always to to have something to do, to say, a story to tell, uh, to always uh, be featured in the news. Uh, And again, to go back to that, that was very much Mr. Beaver's personality. Um, Yes, uh, probably uh, a little bit uh, hyperactive, but it's better for a brand that wants to be heard to be hyperactive than than the opposite. So somehow this was very much ingrained in our DNA. Uh, We wanted two things. We wanted always to do some buzz or, or to be in the, in the background, making a little bit of noise. Um, and so on, we wanted to follow our customers, wherever they were, they were. So, you know, if they were at a, at a soccer game, uh, we wanted to be there. If, uh, after the game or before the game, they, they wanted to, to eat in the three stars Michelin restaurants, we wanted it to be there. If eventually, uh, on the, the next day they were taking a private jet, we want it to be there. And uh, if uh, one day after they, they were purchasing a piece of, uh, of art, whether street art or whether uh, um, pop art, or uh, we wanted also to be associated with the gallery uh, that was selling the art. If eventually that, that same customer wanted to purchase a, a luxury car or Ferrari, we wanted to be there. So it was also a way to be very active because our clients have a very uh, specific lifestyle. And wanted we wanted to be part of that lifestyle wherever uh, they were. So it was a combination of both uh, our DNA to make sure that you know we could turn around the company by being active enough, and second to to follow the customer, the customer in his life and his uh, his journey around the world. I want to again just add a little bit of um,
0: commentary there. And first of all, thank you, uh, Jean-François, for mentioning all that because that's that's great to explain it. Um, there are certain watch brands that say this is our heritage. This is what we like. Um, if you happen, you know, if you happen to also be interested in those things, you know, come check us out. Which is a very sort of old world, more conservative way of looking at it. Ublow said we don't need to be tied by our history. Let's associate with the things that that our clients are doing today. And literally, you know, the brand would study. You know, who are, the, who are the, 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 the consumers? What else are they into? And it wouldn't feel constrained about what it is that you may have done in the past. All what was important is that you were interested in the things that the clients like today. And that open mindedness to trying new things, I think is one of the benefits. And it's not that Hublot would just do anything. Uh, Jean-Claude Biver especially and others of the Hublot team have very specific tastes and people they like and events they like and things they don't like. So it's not like they're trying to do er everything. But the goal, like I think you said, is to be different than that sort of more traditional notion of watch brand luxury, where it's you come into our house and you get to know us versus the Hublot strategy, which is, that's okay, we're going to get to know you, we're going to be into the things you like, we're going to create watches and ideas and, and experiences that fit into the lifestyle that is popular for you and your colleagues. And I think that that, in the luxury context, that watches at price level, was really what Hublot did started that no one else was doing at the time. You know what I mean? Very,
1: very true, very true. And, and I do believe that this, uh, at the end, came from a constraint, which was that uh, when, when the brand uh, needed to be turned around, a lot of avenues were already... Um, uh preempted were already taken uh, you know if you start today a uh, watch company and let's say you're the first watch company that comes to the market let's say that, that, that no watch other watch brand exists okay you'll probably go to uh, to golf or you'll probably go to tennis or maybe a couple of years ago you would have gone to polo but when Hebrew you know started to be done around in, in 2005 all of that was taken. You know, so where where do you go? You you cannot do the the, the Olympic Games. That's taken. You cannot do James Bond. That's taken. Like I said, tennis was taken. Both was taken. So you need to uh, disrupt. Uh, Soccer was a big disruption because at the time, I can tell you that a lot of people looked down on us when we said that we were going into soccer. That was a sport that was supposed to be so popular for, uh, you know, middle class, uh, if not, you know, some more uh, derogatory terms. Uh, eventually, even when we went to Ferrari, you know, like, oh, there's so many watch brands did it, it's not working, uh, you're, you're going to be one of uh, many uh, that is not going to have success and blah, blah, blah. But it's just to find your own model that has not been done. And since it has not been done, people are going to tell you it's, it, it, it's not going to work, otherwise somebody would have done it, you know, already. And uh, But however, if you don't push through, you're just going to do like uh, everybody else and, and the seats are already taken So it's not um, uh, an easy thing to to do and navigate. And that's what I think, you know, that uh, the most difficult thing in the world is turning around uh, a a company. Uh, Obviously, if you have momentum, it's easier to uh, carry on a momentum. I'm not saying it's easy, it's very difficult, but it's easier than to turn around the company, which is for me the most difficult uh, thing to, to, to do. And that's why at the end, we didn't see many, brands altogether but many watch brands being uh, being turned around you know
0: yeah and and again thank you so much for all this we're almost out of time actually this has been such a great conversation john françois but the last question i have that i'd like you to talk about is looking forward a little bit yeah right now we are on the precipice of a new era that probably looks a little bit different than the past we are at a time where the love and demand for watches is quite high consumer awareness of luxury brands is probably an all-time modern high. We also face a future with uncertainty. We don't know um, a lot of different things about our future, let alone, you know, where the major powers are going to be and who they're going to be all the time and stuff like that. What does a watch brand like Hublot do now? What are some of the conversations internally? And I think more generally, um, given what you do know, what are some of the things that uh, we should expect over the next two, three, maybe even four or five years, um, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. So uh, right now, I do believe you're, you're right. We are living a very um, strange period where I n- rarely seen people being as enthusiastic and also as worried at the same time. Enthusiastic because the 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 the, the watch industry is at unprecedented levels. You know, the, the leaders of the industry have like waiting lists of almost like seven to eight years uh, long. Um, the, the prices on the, on the resale markets are at levels that are honestly very difficult to comprehend. Uh, they are through the roof. Uh, it's diffi- there is a huge shortage of products, which I don't think is supply-driven, but demand-driven and uh the numbers are unbelievable every brand is is breaking records obviously included but every single brand is uh, is breaking records at the same time uh we have a, a, a war uh, you know lingering on in uh, in, in europe which is uh, first uh, very sad but it also has uh, you know economic uh, negative uh, impacts we have an inflation in the us and, and in the world which is at a level uh, that we didn't see for, for the, the, the last four decades. Um, in the U.S., more specifically, uh, the, the, we had a contraction of the GDP on the first quarter, and I do believe in a couple of weeks, we'll know that uh, there was also a contraction of the GDP on the, on the GDP of the, on the second quarter, uh, making us officially uh, uh, into a, a, a recession. Um, uh, prices of energy are very high. The stock market uh, is having a very, very rough year. I don't even talk about uh, you know the 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 growth tech uh, stocks, uh, which have been going through uh, a bloodbath. The, the crypto markets and the NFT market have crashed. So, somehow, the luxury market and the and the and the watchmaking market, as we speak, at, at least you know on June uh, the twentieth. Uh, Is still doing extremely well. So it's a very ambivalent uh, feeling at the moment where people could not be happier and at the same time there is very low visibility. So in that case, you know, the idea is first to ride that wave as long as we can. Uh, You know, it's no point being overly pessimistic when things are going good. However, we want to prepare uh, for uh, tough times if they come. I do believe that the best way to go to a crisis is to enter a crisis in a very strong uh, fashion, uh, and I hope that we won't have to face a crisis. You know but if worst comes to worst, uh, you want to enter a crisis very strong. What does it mean? First, in, in, for a watch industry, for a watch uh, brand, sorry, especially in our price points, um, so twenty thousand dollar of uh, average price point, your product needs to be perfect. It needs to be well priced. It needs to be well designed, innovative, creative. Uh, visually pleasing. It needs to be your main driver of success. And for that, I do believe that, uh, you know, kudos to um, our CEO, Ricardo Guadalupe and his uh, design team, because every year they come with very strong collections. So I do believe we get that right. Then we also want to make sure that we have the right um, distribution network. Uh, For us, uh, Hublot, uh, we have verticalized quite a bit of our um uh, Distribution uh, network. Uh, a lot of um, uh, boutiques are now operated by uh, by the brand. And you know, in the US, as I speak, uh, s- uh, more than seventy percent of our sales are done through our own boutiques. You know, we have only a, a smaller network of uh, of um, distribution in the US. We have fi- in, in North America. I mean, we have fifty doors, five zero, and out of them, fifteen, one five our own boutiques, but however they deliver more than 70% of our sales. So I do believe that, you know, we know our clients, we interact with our clients, we know the business is there, we know the risks where the, 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 the watches are landed, we know our level of, um, of discount, which, which is in our boutique for 70% of our sales, which is 0% this year. So that's a, a statement, you know, it means that the brand is healthy, um, it means that the the, the, the the brand is not diluted. We don't have a lot of point of sales. Uh, the watches are going on real with real customers that we know, people that we interact with, that we bring into our universe, uh, not discounting the, the the product, designing the right products. I do believe that, yes, if a crisis comes, you know, we're not immune to, to crisis. Uh, we will suffer. And if the times, yes, are more difficult, we will also have more difficult times. But we need to enter... Um, uh, uh, any potential crisis this way, strong, uh, because we will weather any storm, uh, this way. And at the end, it all comes down to that desirability of products and exclusivity of, uh, of the brands. Those are the two pillars of, um, the, the strengths and the health of any company, but our, of our company. And if we continue in that direction, uh, I do believe. Uh, that uh, the company has uh, some very strong gear, uh, ahead of uh, of uh, of her
0: very sensible plan in uncertain times. Thank you so much. This has been the Super- superlative podcast. My guest has been the president of Ublow North America, Mr. Jean-Francois Sparrow. Thank you so much, and please w- go to the Ublo. Website to check out all their latest watches as well as the vast amount of Ublo coverage on a blog to watch.com. Jean Francois, once again, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Ariel. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at a blog watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.